Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie Podcast. This is a podcast where we dissect and analyze the immense, extraordinary, suspendous power of storytelling to learn how to harness it to supercharge our businesses, careers, and overall lives. I'm Gorev. And I'm Kevin. Welcome to the season two opener of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie Podcast. Yeah. You know, Kev, it's it's gonna be an amazing season two. Season two, I'm so excited, and we're kicking off with a cool one. But before we get to that, um, I have a fun fact that is just, I believe, one of the world's greatest conspiracies ever. So you ready? Okay, way to start a season, but let's go. I mean, it's just, it's, we're, we're unraveling one of the most, the biggest misconceptions biggest conspiracies on earth i mean like this changed my life from learning the truth so do you know what vegetable is known to improve eyesight carrots yes that is emphatically unbelievably false um this this story is really wild because you're not even from this country and you knew that instinctively but essentially what had happened was during the war um, the British had invented sonar technology. Wait, which, which war? Um, one, one of the wars. I, I don't know which war. It's not important. During the war. <laughs> God. During the war. I could have Googled it to know which war, but it's fine. Uh, during the war, the British had invented sonar technology. So, I looked it up after this recording. It was actually during the World War II, according to the Smithsonian Magazine. And it was the radar technology invented by the British Air Force. Gorov had a slip of the tongue here. Let's continue. And they didn't want uh, anyone to know they had this technology that allowed them to see ships. So essentially, they told this story that they that the reason they could see the ships was not because of new technology, but because they had really good eyesight from eating a lot of carrots. So the myth of carrots improving your eyesight started because the British told a story. And I tell you, man, this is one of the craziest things I've ever heard. And I'm in love with it. I'm in love with the fact how powerful storytelling is that millions of billions of maybe of people around the globe believe carrots improve your eyesight because the British didn't want their enemies to know that they had sonar technology. So... Yeah, I know that was really rambled, and I know that was really, I was really excited by this. Uh, but what I love about this is it, it's a story. You know, they created a compelling story for a strategic advantage. But I'm not, I'm not like a biologist, so I'm not going to claim that this carrots improve eyesight. But if you believe in the power of placebos, I'm just saying there's a chance that the British came up with a story, willed it into reality, and people's eyesight. Maybe you've gotten better. And meanwhile, in the late 2010s, adolescents have been eating Tide Pods just because. Anyways, let's get to our season two opening guest. Grav, who are we talking to? Well, Kev, today we are talking with a true genius, a true innovator, a true expert storyteller, Dr. John List. Dr. John List is one of the top economic minds in the country, if not in the world. He's one of the top economists and professors at the University of Chicago. Um, he's worked with a multitude of the 
biggest companies in the world. He was a senior economic advisor in the White House for the Bush administration. He was the chief economist at Uber, coining Ubernomics, and he's currently the chief economist at Lyft. If you have taken an Uber, if you have taken a Lyft, if you have lived in America, some of his work has affected you. He is truly an icon in the space, and I am so excited to have him on the show. I met him when I was 15 years old, and I was studying economics. I was taking economics courses at Harvard over the summer, and um, I was enamored by the field of behavioral economics. And he is definitely, definitely a true expert of his craft. Let's get to it. And today we are extra excited to be joined by Professor John List. I would tell you his story, but、uh, we should really leave it to himself to tell his own story. So, Professor, to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your story? So, so my story is probably a unique one, even though everyone says or thinks their story is unique.、Um, I do think it's fair to say, though, that the odds. Really didn't want me here, and what I mean by that is, so I'm a first-gen kid. My dad was a truck driver. My grandpa was a truck driver. My brother is a truck driver, and really, I escaped, so to speak, being a truck driver by being pretty good at golf. So my dream in high school was to become a professional golfer. And it turns out that I got a partial scholarship at UW Stevens Point, and I went to Stevens Point as an undergrad. And very early on, during that golfing experience, I figured out that I was never going to be good enough to make any money golfing. As an economist would say, it certainly was not my comparative advantage. So I pivoted to my second love. Which was economics, and I ended up majoring in economics at Stevens Point. I went on to graduate school at Wyoming. From there, I've done a few different stops. I I was in the White House for two years at the Council of Economic Advisors. I joined the University of Chicago's econ department in 2005, and this entire ride since I graduated from the University of Wyoming has. More or less, been filled with using the world as my lab, and trying to explore and explain and describe people's behaviors in the real world using field experiments. That's really cool. I mean, you're such a storied and experienced economist who's worked in so many different fields and so many different big things.、Um, and it's funny because I'm so passionate about economics. I studied at school, and I've had a lot of conversations about it. But we actually haven't had an economist on the show yet, which is just shocking. So, to ask you a very level set beginner's、yeah. question, what is behavioral economics, and how does it differ from classical economics? Sure, sure. The way that I think about behavioral economics is that it uses variants of traditional economic assumptions. And oftentimes, it's with a psychological motivation. So that's done to explain and predict behavior, provide policy prescriptions, etc. Now, a story that you might want to think about is, in a lot of cases, people view behavioral economics as a rejection of mainstream economics. I don't think that's right. 
So I live here in Chicago. If I want to fly to Boston and go to the, the wild card game between the Yankees and Red Sox on Tuesday night, I will use traditional economics to get me roughly to the parking lot at Fenway that's adjacent to Fenway Park. But then I will use behavioral economics to get me into my seed. And in that way, behavioral economics is a very strong complement to mainstream economics to help us understand the world. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such an interesting field. It's that combination of psychology and uh, philosophy, even in some respects, and economics and so many different fields, combination to this idea of how do humans behave? Because I think classical kind of banks on humans behaving entirely rationally at all times. And we know from human life experience, that's not always the case. But it, it's still a fairly new field, right? I mean, it's I know at UCLA, there was one course in it for undergrads. No, I think that's right. I, I think if I was a listener, I would want in my mind, Dr. Spock, who's the, who is the unswervingly rational computing agent at each moment in time, and Homer Simpson, who is self-control problems to a T, um, doesn't really understand much about calculating or rationality. And that's really neoclassical economics and behavioral economics. Now, it's fair to say that behavioral economics has made many inroads to mainstream economics in the past few decades, no doubt. But to say that it wasn't around, I think would be a mistake. And what I mean by that is if you look at the writings of Adam Smith, for example, he argued in the, in the moral sentiments, uh, which is kind of the less, the less famous part of his work, that on one shoulder was a moral Hector and on the other one was a calculating agent who's trying to make a bunch of money. And those two are weighing off against one another. And it goes all the way then through to Herbert Simon, uh, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, of course, famously talked about behavioral economics in the late 70s. And they're really the fathers, Dick Thaler, et cetera. But, but you are right in saying that it is becoming more mainstream absolutely in the last few decades. And, and I think that will continue to grow in import. And the reason why is because we're still holding true to a rational model. So for example, people within the behavioral economics literature that's making an impact still have an objective function they're, they're still trying to maximize something. They have constraints. But you add in psychological features to people's preferences, for example, and that leads to a new set of results. So it's not as though you're purely casting the mainstream economics on the side. You're using that as the engine. And then behavioral economics is added on top in very important ways and very insightful ways. To kind of dive further into what you do, we also uh, obviously wonder, you know, how does storytelling apply to what you do? Um, you know, what role does storytelling play in your field? In my life, I have worn a lot of different hats. So on the one hand, 20 years ago, I was an advisor to the president 
on environmental and resource issues. And at those meetings, whether it's with the EPA, the DOE, the Department of Transportation, et cetera, et cetera, in the White House, in the Roosevelt Room, whatever, I was typically the only economist at the table. When you think about now, my role is chief economist at Lyft. So I've done that for now nearly four years. I was a chief economist at Uber for two years before that. So I, I work with a lot of firms as well. And in many cases, I'm the only economist sitting at the table. So in that world, you have to leave your economies on the sidelines. That's what I call the language of economists. It's easy <laughs> when you don't really understand something. It's easy just to fall back and use a bunch of economies. Uh, what's harder is translating the economies or translating what the science has taught us over the years in economics to the current argument that we're trying to make. Now, whether it's in the West Wing or whether it's out at Lyft, the most effective form of argument is science-based storytelling. What I mean by that is the science is driving the truth, but you can't keep it in economies. You have to put a story around that truth to why it should matter for that person. Now, to me, that's part of critical thinking. Um, it's part of abstract and logical reasoning and using the world around you, and importantly, using theory of mind to put yourself in the shoes of the other people sitting around the table and say, well, here's how they are coming at this problem. And you need a relevant narrative or a relevant story to tell what the scientific truth actually is. If you don't have that, good luck. It, it will fall on deaf ears. You will talk to your blue in the face and you will not change the world for the better because you are unwilling to use theory of mind and understand how is that person looking at this problem and what kind of narrative or story do I need to tell so they can understand the science. That's the key, is just get people to understand the science, then they can make up their own minds. I, I don't think storytelling or narratives are useful for um, undue persuasion. I mean, you can do that, but I've never thought about doing it that way. To me, it's more about elucidating a very complex topic in ways that people can understand. You know, we talked about this a lot, obviously, um, on the show, and it's so fascinating when we we love talking to academics like yourself who are amazing storytellers because there's so much amazing knowledge with some really complicated terms and that ability of a really educated academic to distill it in a simple and educational way is just so inspiring to bring so many people into different fields and teach them really important concepts that could have a really complicated name, but maybe by using an example in a story, you can teach a lot better. Do you feel your role as an educator has 
made you a better storytelling person in this world? Oh, I think that's right. Um, when I look back at my teaching career, which I was lucky enough to have Gaurav in the 2015 Harvard summer school class, uh, uh, a tweak for the, the Harvard gang. Um, you know, I've taught for about 27 years. And the biggest thrill that I have as an educator is when I can see the light bulb go off above the student's head. That part of it always makes it worth it because you're realizing that you're getting through to the person. And importantly, economics can get very difficult, especially early on when you're learning about economics because you have a bunch of stuff thrown at you. Like I said, you have economies, you're learning a new language. You're thinking about abstract reasoning in ways that you've never used abstract reasoning before. You're mixing around mathematical symbols and mathematical logic and using what you memorized in high school to try to make inference within an economics model. You're drawing graphs. You're doing a lot of different activities all at once. So in many cases when I'm teaching, I can see those moments where the class is totally on the deep end and they are not understanding a word that I'm saying. At that point, you back off, you tell a story that is trying to make the important lessons much easier to understand. And then that tends to lighten up the room they, they then see it, and sometimes with a little bit of humor, it helps, because they then see, wow, that really is an easy concept once you strip away the peel and see the banana. But that's something you learn through time and in your pedagogy. And that type of storytelling or narrative, it happens in every walk of life. So I found that I was using that in the White House, in the boardroom, in, in my team at Lyft, in the team at Uber, et cetera. That willingness to do that, to bring everybody along, was really something that through time in, in the classroom, you learn that. Yeah, for sure. Economics is obviously a field I'm very passionate about. And a lot of that came from me taking your course with Darren S. Merlou and yeah. Professor Leibson uh, at Harvard. And which inspired me to go on a study at UCLA. And it's obviously a huge part of my career now. Um, and it's so interesting because economics at UCLA, especially is they take a very quantitative approach. So mm -hmm. there are times where you get really in the weeds and the math and the numbers, and it can get a little bit hard to see the underlying logic. But the thing about economics that I love is that it's a study of life. It's a social science. And how and stories are so important in this type of education because the math is obviously hugely important. It's hugely important to understand the science and the logic behind it. But it's that connection that yeah. connects it to real markets, to real sales, to a real world understanding where kind of the insight comes from. It's like the first time uh, my professor said quasi hyperbolic time discounting to me. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> 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 yeah, that, and for sure, you know, as students, we definitely appreciate uh, times when uh, our instructors are, are willing to 
bring people along with them and explain uh, concepts with relevant stories and examples that, that makes things easier easier for us to learn. And to, to kind of shift gears, and we've been just dying to start talking about it, um, you have uh, this great book coming up uh, called The Voltage Effect, uh, which is also a, a very interesting concept. Can you tell us about what this book is about and also, you know, what the voltage effect is? The book, let's say, started in my mind after I started a program called the Chicago Heights Early Childhood Center. We call it Check. It That's a preschool um, in a community called Chicago Heights, which is just south of Chicago, a preschool that I started with Steve Levitt and Roland Fryer. And I spent a lot of time, of course, starting the school. This would have been about 10, 12 years ago. And after a few years of effort, we opened the school and we scientifically explored what are the best ways to move the human capital formation, both cognitively and executive function skills of three, four and five-year-olds. So worked super hard did a scientific set of field experiments, and we found great results. So I was very proud of this. So I went and started to talk to policymakers, and I said, let's scale up, check. And what I meant by scale up is the experiment was essentially two schools, two buildings, which I started down in Chicago Heights. And I wanted all of Chicago, all of Illinois, all of the Midwest, all of the United States and the whole world to use what we had discovered in Chicago Heights. So that's what I'm calling scale up. People laughed at me. They said, well, that will never work at scale. And I said, why do you say that? And the typical response was, we always hear this from academics. They get a great result in the Petri dish, and then they start to expand it, and the result isn't as great as what it was in the Petri dish. So that's what I call the voltage effect. It's making a mountain into a molehill. I got a great result in the Petri dish. I scaled it up, and now I get a molehill. I get a result that's only a small fraction of the result that I got in the Petri dish. So now that's interesting because my career from the beginning in the late 80s, early 90s, I was very proud of being one of the early pioneers in field experiments in economics. Now, field experiments in economics essentially going out to the world testing behavioral economic theory, testing neoclassical theory, basically using the world as my lab to try to figure out how do people behave, why are they behaving that way, and how can we change their behaviors. I was very proud of that. I thought, I'm going to retire going forward doing field experiments. And I then started to wonder about this second part. And the second part was, look, you just found a great intervention or a great program 
in the Petri dish, how can we be sure that that result will scale up? And I started to think, you know, we had that same problem in the White House. We were talking about Energy Star. And we were talking about Energy Star worked for a small group of people. Do we think it will work for a broad group of people? We had that problem at Uber where we were thinking about trying something in Seattle. It worked. And then will it expand to the rest of America or the rest of the world? And my, my wife and I were sitting right down the street from Uber's headquarters on Market Street in San Francisco. And she said, you know what? This needs to be the second part of your career. And that part essentially to me has become the science of using science. What is the science behind this voltage effect? And that began a, a several year academic program in both using theory and data to explore why does the voltage effect occur? So first of all, it is a stylized fact. It occurs nearly every time. So just that should make you kind of stand back and say, wow, we're wasting a bunch of time and a bunch of money when we scale up something that is predictably unscalable. We don't know right now what is predictably unscalable. That's what my book tries to lay out. And, and here you can say, well, okay, what does the book actually tell us in a nutshell? And if any of your listeners are, are Tolstoy fans, Anna Karenina starts out with what I think is one of the best first lines ever in a book. It says, happy families are all alike. Unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. That's a lot like policy or ideas. A lot of times people said to me, look, check doesn't have the silver bullet. And then I say to them, well, what's the silver bullet? And they can't articulate it. They're thinking about the problem of scaling exactly wrong. I want you to think about it as a weakest link problem. And what that means is there are, I see five links in the scaling problem. Let's say the five vital signs that an idea has to have. And it has to check all of those boxes. Otherwise, it will fail. And the way to think about it is scalable ideas are all alike. Each unscalable idea is unscalable in its own way. And because it will have one or multiple of the five flaws that I point out in the voltage effect. What I loved about really early on in one of your early chapters of the book um, or the preface, you were talking about how, you know, in, when we think of scaling, um, first thing that comes to mind is high growth tech startups, you know, the, the VC bat firms that scale really fast. But you talk about how scaling is actually a more universal kind of theme that you see in any type of idea, even as small as like individually running a family yeah. to multiple different careers. Can you tell us a little bit about what scaling can kind of apply to our day-to-day -day lives? No, that's a, that's a great insight. And, and you're exactly right. So when I first started thinking about the problem of scaling around check, my idea was, okay, I've heard the experts say, move fast and break things. 
and throw a bunch of spaghetti against the wall and whatever sticks, that's what you run with. Okay. That's not really my style, and I don't think that should be the style of how we do and use science to make sure the ideas that we want to scale can actually scale. So for me, it started off thinking, okay, this is check, this is a policy, and maybe it has some something to do with the business world in, in tech, like Facebook or Uber or Amazon, et cetera. But then as I thought about it more and more, I started thinking about my own life. I have eight kids. So that's a scaling adventure in and of itself. They taught me a lot about the features of scaling. If you think about, is this just for those firms that want to take over the world like Amazon and Walmart? No. Think about my brother, my dad, my grandpa, one man, one truck, one great life. They just have to understand that they're the secret sauce behind the business. So if you think you're going to scale and take over the world, the problem is humans don't scale. So if the human is the secret sauce, just be willing to admit, if I'm going to do this job, if I'm going to be a truck driver owning my own truck in a small business, that's going to be the level of scale that I need to be happy with. And that's okay. But it's just that I want people to understand when they have an idea, how big is the tent? And if the tent is super small and you want something large, you have to pivot. If the tent is medium and you want something smaller, pivot to something smaller. Now, the, the point is each idea, whether it's with your family, whether it's with a business, whether it's with a policy, each idea has a fundamental signature and features of that idea should be looked at scientifically. And if it passes what I call the five vital signs, that's a scalable idea. If it only passes, say, three of the five vital signs, you could still scale, but don't plan on it being a really huge tent. Plan on it being a smallish tent. And if you're happy with that, great. But from the beginning, how you invest in your company, how we adopt policies within the public policy realm, we should have an understanding of, first of all, will it have a voltage effect as we scale it up? And for whom, where, and when will this idea be a hit? And for whom, where, and when won't it be a hit? And if I'm a public policymaker, I say, we're not going to help that group of people with this policy, so we need to develop a new policy for them. And then that's how you end up doing policymaking. I don't think we, right now, we think about this strategy as evidence-based policy. That's exactly wrong. You should think about it as policy-based evidence. And what I'm talking about is understand at scale what are the constraints. What are the, the things or the aspects that we can't do? Like, for example, in check, I hired 20 teachers at check. If we scaled that up and had to hire 20,000 teachers, what's going to happen? If we hired only the 20 great teachers for check, I can't 
find 20,000 great teachers right now. So if teachers are the secret ingredient to check, that's not going to scale because I can't find the important ingredient of 20,000 teachers. So what I'm advocating here when I say policy-based evidence is look at what's going to happen at scale and bring that back to the Petri dish and see, does it work with those constraints? And if it does, you have a scalable idea. If it doesn't, you need to pivot and revise your idea to something that can meet the constraints at scale. You know, in the book, you talk a lot about that idea of that initial idea and making sure it's done properly and making sure you pull the right insights to avoid things like false positives and to avoid scaling up an idea that's ultimately doomed to fail. And as someone who has a storytelling podcast, I see a lot of storytelling there, um, especially when you talk about things like confirmation bias and loss aversion. We talk a lot about with psychologists, this idea of getting locked in our stories where we get a storyline and we become addicted to it. Yeah. So um, I think that was such a fascinating part of your book when you talk about the importance of things like replication because it causes us to look elsewhere for people not locked in the stories. Is this something you see a lot in academia, a lot of research, people locked in their stories, which tunnels their view? No, you're, you're exactly right. Um, I think confirmation bias is, I think it's pretty close to being a universal phenomenon in some way, shape, or form with all humans. And, you know, I, I created what I call the, the critical thinking pyramid. About 11 months ago, I wrote a, an academic paper on critical thinking. And that has four levels of what I would say maturation of a thinker. And the last level, which of course, I'm not very creative, but I, I called the last level the great thinker. Um, on that level, that's where you incredibly and completely shed this idea of confirmation bias, because it's so difficult to shed. Um, even when we don't know, even when I try not to have it, I still might have it. Well, that's the import. And early on in chapter one, I talk about, you know, one of the vital signs is make sure it's not a false positive. Confirmation bias essentially comes in because people desire a result so badly that when they see the evidence, they'll, they'll take it immediately if it conforms to what they want or what they believe. And then when a study comes along that says, you know, that was wrong, they'll immediately find a flaw in that study. So what I urge in the academic sense is you need independent replication, not, not the same scientist or the same team of scientists doing the second and third and fourth replications. You need a completely independent replicator. And further, it would be super if they were enemies and the independent replicator was trying to show that the initial scientist was wrong, I would call that an adversarial collaboration even. That's how we get faster to the truth. And many cases, think about, you know, both of you are, are much too young to have witnessed the D.A.R.E. program that Nancy Reagan and President Reagan rolled out in the 80s. I was an 80s kid. 
I can remember in high school, the officials came to my high school and they did the D.A.R.E. program, which was just say no. Nancy Reagan, I can still remember, would look into the television monitor and say to all the teens, just say no to drug use. And then it was a comprehensive education program that was meant to educate teens not to use drugs. We're basically going through that same thing right now with opioids and the crisis that we have. It's laughable to think that that kind of program by itself could actually work with teens. And I can still remember asking my teacher, there's no way, I, I didn't use drugs in high school, but I had friends who did. And I would say, there's no way that that program is going to affect them. And the teacher said something like, yeah, but they say that there's some data behind it. There was data, in fact, that was that Honolulu experiment that showed that they found a result. The problem is the Honolulu experiment was a false positive. Your listeners should say, well, what's a false positive? You can say the data were lying. And sometimes the data lie. And that's why we need to make sure before scaling that you actually have the truth. That's vital sign number one in the book. It's such an interesting thing because we live in such a data-heavy world now. And we're constantly being shown different types of data and a lot of data. And we're getting overwhelmed. And a lot of people's excuses, are, not excuse, but justifications for a lot of the reasons, right? Well, there's data that shows it. So that's what I love books like yours that teaches us the underlying things, teaches us that. Data isn't an excuse for truth. Data, you have to be critically thinking about what you're seeing and how it was collected and why it was collected, especially as data overturns our lives. We will close up this uh, episode with uh, a segment called Suspenders. Here's how it's going to work. We ask you uh, a random fun question that's not related <laughs> to anything whatsoever, and you can give us any random fun answer you feel like. Okay, I'm a little bit afraid, but uh, let's, <laughs> let's give it a go. This sounds fun. Any, anyone right. that says linen suit and plastic tie, uh, I, I should be expecting this kind of question. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. So question of the day is, what was your most recent experience of going down the rabbit hole? I think that... We haven't used organizations as often as we should as academics, and organizations have not used us as partners. So here's what I mean by that. I oftentimes say that the world's greatest untapped resource is the academic, because the academic, on the one hand, I could get academics lined up from my office here in Hyde Park all the way out to O'Hare Airport, who would be willing to work for free for a firm or for an organization to help them, but they would receive a payment of the data. So they could write about the, what the data taught them and how they can use it in an academic journal or a popular book or an op-ed or whatever. Firms don't do that enough. Now, we as academics, I think, are beginning to do that more and more. But when I look at, so look at Lyft as an example. This is a treasure trove of opportunity because you have a two-sided market. 
I can set up incentives on the demand side, on the supply side. I can look at how these two markets and two sides of the market interact as I do, as I show you in the voltage effect, when you say you treat only 5% with a coupon versus 95% of people in a market, how that perturbs the whole market. And that's what scaling is about. Do you perturb the whole market or not? So you have your own lab in many cases within a firm. Now you have to do it in good faith. You have to do it in an ethical way, no doubt. But once you check those boxes, you have an opportunity to unlock some of the deeper mysteries in economics because there is just a treasure many times in the data that firms have, but also kind of in my world is a data generator in the opportunities that they have that we can make the consumer better off and the firm better off. And those are out there. But then there's another big win, and that's the scientific win. Is there a way that I can learn something about the economic science that I can then write about and I can help the rest of the world learn about what I've just learned in that firm. So that's a pretty big rabbit hole, but it's one that I think represents a very important future of not only the social sciences, but the sciences more generally. Now, chemists and biologists and computer scientists, they're kind of already doing this, right? In, in a way, many of them are doing it, but in the social sciences, you don't have as much of that going on. And, and I think that's a rabbit hole that I want more and more people to go down in the future because I see that as a very important part of moving the economic science to a new level. Welcome back to Top Hat. This is the part of the episode where we dissect and analyze some of the key learnings and insights we got from this week's Expert Story Talk. And this week, we had one of the top economic minds in the country, John List. He's such an eloquent, uh, well-rounded speaker and educator. He's been involved in so many different unique fields, from huge multinational airlines, to working with kids, to the classroom, to being an executive at Uber, to being an executive at Lyft, from working with these huge tech entrepreneurs, to working inside the White House. I mean... You, you have to be able to switch so fluently and so easily uh, to be able to tell authentic and important stories in these fields. That's what I love about John. And uh, you see this in the way he writes in his uh, way is that he has mastered that and he has gained that important understanding that when you talk to different audiences to get a point across, to get anything done, especially when he works at such high levels, you have to be able to speak in their language. You have to be able to tell them stories that's going to resonate with them. Yeah, and that is where storytelling comes in. You need to be able to translate the economies, as John has coined it, into a language that your audience understands. And usually that language comes in the form of stories. Something else we've talked about that, that I think is very important uh, is the use of policy-based evidence uh, rather than evidence-based policies. You know, intuitively, we would think that to make a policy, we need to design an experiment so that we can get the result and use those results as evidence to decide uh, how should we make a policy that's useful. But uh, as John talked about, that approach can be flawed in the sense that when you're designing the experiment, you build the experiment on, on a smaller scale usually. 
and you're not sure whether that'll scale up, right? So the important thing here to make policy-based evidence at the step where we're designing the experiment, we should already have scalability in mind. Often you put a lot of time and energy into a research project to prove something, to prove a hypothesis. And the problem is you can get so stuck in that storyline that you start building the experiment towards that storyline instead of uh, reading the evidence and seeing what story comes out of it. So the really important thing John talked about is not to do that, to let the evidence tell the story instead of getting the story to tell the evidence. Even if I'm never going to go out and do a huge uh, economic research study with the White House, this lesson of not getting stuck in my own storylines, of letting the evidence write my story instead of trying to mold the evidence to my story is crucial for my day-to-day life. So, I mean, it's all storytelling. Storytelling is everything. That's what we do on this show. Um, and if this is your first episode, I hope you enjoyed the launch of season two. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at LSPTPod. And-, and if you like our show, subscribe wherever you listen to a podcast. Leave us a comment or review to let us know what you think or how we can get better. This has been another great episode of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie podcast. Get excited for more exciting conversations in season two.